0: Je vole sous le soleil Sans toi, rien n'est pareil Je vole sous ton ciel Je vole sous les nuages Tu as laissé tes bagages Je vole sous un toit Même si
1: tes
2: bras sont loin de moi. Bonjour, my name is Tegan Higginbotham, and I am obsessed with all things French. But I want to know why. Why has the land of baguettes and berets captured my imagination so vividly, especially when the reality doesn't always measure up to the myth? This week, we'll be talking about Paris syndrome the psychological condition in which some people are so overwhelmed by the disappointment of Paris, they can actually experience dizziness, anxiety and hallucinations. We'll also talk tourism from a Parisian's perspective, as well as sharing a few
3: tips for first-time
2: travellers. Welcome to Rue Mark.
3: And that's what Paris is all about. It's kind of about finding your own perfect Paris. Uh,
4: people are disappointed. It's because... They have too big expectations and they think it's like, you know, uh, Disneyland.
5: Don't go into a museum if you don't like museums. You are annoying for people that like museums.
2: I went to Paris for the very first time when I was 21. This wasn't a trip I'd been planning and saving for for a long time. On the contrary, one of my best friends, Beck, who I actually met when I was two, according to our mothers, had gone over to Manchester to study. She was having a rough time and was feeling a little bit homesick so late one night, she called and asked if I wanted to come visit her, and I said yes. So on the 12th of January, 2010, I hopped on an international flight for the very first time in my life, en route for London. The flight was fine, you know, I watched Julie and Julia for the very first time, and one of the flight attendants gave me three Wee Spas, which was confusing, very confusing, but still nice. I arrived at Heathrow the following day, met Beck and we made our way to Brixton where we'd crash at her sister's place. Now I have to say, London was great, but it was freezing. And as someone who'd just come from 35 degrees, I knew it was going to be bad. But as far as I'm concerned, if I'm wearing eight layers and you can still see nipple, that is too cold. We did all the usual touristy stuff, you know, the changing of the guard, Westminster Abbey, Big Ben but the one downside of being in London was that it was raining heaps. What was really strange though, and I I still don't get this, is we went into this pub and the woman who was working there was like, sorry about the weather. This doesn't really happen very much. And I was like, this is London. If I know anything, I know these three things about London. One, it rains heaps in London. Two, it rains heaps in London. And three, crumpets what do you mean it doesn't rain in London? I mean, the first three metres on every building are covered in barnacles. British people's teeth aren't bad. That's coral. And you know that thing where you sit in a bath for too long and your skin goes all wrinkly? That's the whole queen. She's 38. Basically, I'm trying to express that it rained a lot in London. But how do I remember all this detail? Well, as I mentioned in the last episode, I am an avid diary keeper So I can tell you that the next day, when Beck and I boarded the Eurostar for Paris at 10.30am, I wrote something very interesting. It was just two words written in capital letters with a question mark at the end. Learn French? Now, I had studied French in high school, but I hadn't revised it at all since then. So by the time I got on the train, I think I knew two words in total, the word for baguette and the word for no. But I just love that this only dawned on me as a potential issue 90 minutes out of Paris. We disembarked at Nord and walked the 20 or so minutes along Rue de Dunkerque de l'Hôtel Angers-Gilles. That was the sentence. And over the next five days, I got my first taste of Paris life. And that first taste did not go down well. To begin with, I was finding even the most basic of human interactions highly stressful due to the language barrier. So as a result, I was too scared to go into many of the beautiful French cafes or to order the interesting food. Instead, Beck and I found ourselves sticking to the familiar just so we wouldn't have to interact. I was constantly walking into traffic and nearly always on the verge of wetting myself because it turns out you have to pay to use the public toilets in France. And i just blown all my cash on flights. I didn't have that kind of money. Not that fancy wee money rich people talk about. Those epistocrats. <laughs> On top of all that, I was overwhelmed by the sheer size of Paris. Melbourne's CBD is 6.2 kilometres squared. Paris is 105.4 kilometres squared. And on every one of those streets, I felt like there was someone trying to scam me. If you've been, you know all too well what I'm talking about. When I mention the men who stand on the stairs leading up to the Sacre Coeur, and they, they plait these little bracelets on you. So these men, they literally grab your hand and start tying this thing on. Then they force you to pay for it. I mean, here in Australia, it's so easy to avoid the crazies. You just stay away from the steps of the town hall during comedy festival. But in Paris, every day it was something new. But what was really interesting is that despite wanting desperately to fall in love in Paris, the thing that I found the most difficult to deal with while I was over there were the men. Now, I should say, I've never been very good at dating and flirting in my mind, going to a nightclub is similar to taking your car to the mechanics, you know? Like there's a load of guys standing around saying stuff you don't really understand, and then before you know it, you've been fucked. But the Parisian men seem to have everything turned up to a ten, and I wasn't used to it. It was, it was too much for me. It was intimidating. So I came back from Paris a little bit sad. But it turns out I'm not the only one who's had a tricky first time in Paris. Actor comedian and filmmaker Rama Nicholas has been to Paris on several occasions but just like me her first time wasn't that great. Rama, thank you for coming into
0: Rula Mark. What happened? Thanks for having me. Um well, my first time in Paris was interesting, like like yours. Yeah. Um and it's kind of a long story, so I'll tell it to you in Please its entirety because it it's kind of like builds up. Uh, so I was on a really long uh, trip, about eight months, nine months sort of around the world, and I was in Europe and I had been in G- in Germany, in Berlin, and I got, we're talking like 2006. Okay. Yeah, so it was, what, 12 years ago-ish. And uh, I was in Berlin and I got one of those rideshare things and that was quite new back then uh, because I was, you know, a backpacker and broke. And so it was really cheap to get in a car with people and cruise along the Autobahn to, <laughs> Autobahn down to Paris, from, from Berlin to Paris. But it took like ages. I don't, can't even remember, but it was hours and hours and hours. And I got in the car with these this couple and another guy who was in the rideshare. Quickly, I quickly started to understand the couple were very, very annoying. And they were obsessed with Brian Adams. <laughs> what a weird thing. Yeah, Brian Adams. Yeah, they were just obsessed with him. And and it was really annoying. Like you couldn't even put your own he- he- headphones in to listen to your own music to kind of tune out. So I had to like zen it the whole way. And the guy next to me was super quiet and I swear I think he was like a drug mule or something. Like he didn't say a word. He was just like sitting there nervously the whole time. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we got to Paris. Um, it was a hell ride and we got to Paris Really late, and the deal was with this couple that were driving, uh, was that they were going to take me to my hostel, and that was the deal because we knew we were going to arrive late. We arrived in the middle of Paris, um, they couldn't find their way around, so uh, we're in the center of Paris, and they're like, All right, you have to get out, and I'm like, What. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't know where your hostel is. We can't take you there. It's too late. We're we're already late for our thing. So I get out and I said, you guys, you guys are the worst. You know, you're really, really not good people. And anyway, so they're like, oh, the station's over there. So I start walking to the central station with all of my stuff, like passport money, you know, like everything. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> this is so bad. So I got on this train and got off at the stop where my hostel was nearby and I'm walking down the down these alleyways and there's like people, like dodgy looking people in like corners. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the worst. Anyway, uh, I finally got to the hostel safely. I arrive and I'd called them the day before and booked, you know, um, and they kind of said, uh, oh, we've got heaps of beds. You don't, you don't need to book. We don't, we kind of don't, don't need to do that. And I'm like, are you sure? I really want to you know, make sure I have a bed, and they're like, "No, it's fine, it's fine." So I rock up and I go to check in, and the guy goes, "Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any beds available," and I just said, "What? No!" And he was really like, <laughs> like he was really rude. Yeah, <laughs> it was rude. Uh, and he's like, "We don't have any beds," and I said, "I called, and you guys said that you would have a bed for me." Um, so you know, we've got to you've got to do something here. And he's like, "Too bad, you have to leave, you have to go," and. I just – it was like 1 o'clock in the morning by then and I I just looked at him and I said, please, like I, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't know what to do. And he's like, oh, well, there's nothing I can help you with. And I just like at that moment I just kind of broke a little. Like I'd been travelling for a while and I'd accumulated that, you know, travel tiredness and I'd had the hell ride with these people that dumped me in the middle of the city and I just – and I'm not a public crier, Right. But I just, like, broke broke something inside and I just started crying at his face, like tears. I just remember staring him in the eyes and tears are running down my face. And I'm looking at him and I wasn't, like, yelling. I wasn't hysterical. I'm just crying going, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. And he's like, oh. Like you could see his face. like he, he immediately changed from this sort of facade of rudeness to, like, shock. And he went, oh, oh, madam. Madam, madam, please, please. And I went. I, I just don't know what to do. I've got nowhere to go. I don't know where I am. And because you know, uh, twelve years ago, the internet was pretty shit. There weren't smartphones. You know, you couldn't just look up on your phone, Google Maps, find a place nearby, Uber yourself to that place, book online. You know, that wasn't that. It wasn't as easy as what it is today. Mm. So I start crying at this guy's face. He's like, "Madam, madam, oh please." And I'm like, "You got to help me." And he goes, "Okay, okay. There might be one." Th- one thing, and he said, that, "All right, there's one bed available, but it's in the boys' dorm. Oh no! And and do you mind having that bed? And I said, No, as long as they don't mind, you know, because I I need to stay somewhere. Um, I got into this dorm, and it was full of the sweetest Japanese boys that you have ever <laughs> met. <laughs> like they were the coolest, you know. They were, it was like they were in a rock and roll band. Like they were the coolest." sweetest Japanese guys. And they were so respectful and they were so quiet and they didn't snore or fart or leave their stinky things around. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I just lucked out. Like and they didn't mind that I was that I was there. But I don't I think they were so polite that they wouldn't have said anything anyway. Yeah, that was really lucky that I got that bed. Uh and then after I kind of checked myself in, I went down to the bar I I went to get a beer because I I just needed to decompress a little. In amongst all yeah. of that, did you cuz when I was there in Paris the first time
2: and had those difficult experiences, I still I still found so much that I loved about the city. Were you still able to enjoy aspects of Paris or was it just too overwhelming?
0: Uh I definitely enjoyed aspects. Mm. Absolutely. Like um yeah, I I loved Notre Dame. Like I I don't think I've ever been to a place of worship like that oh, apart from um, oh, so here's what happened when I went to Notre Dame like you know when you're traveling in Europe you see a lot of churches mm. that's that's a thing that you do as a as like a traveler a lot or, of churches yeah. <laughs> as a tourist because they're beautiful and really 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 friggin old like so everything is so much older than here in Australia. So you're like, oh my god, this is like a thousand years old. Um, so I went up to Notre Dame. I thought, oh yeah, here's another kind of beautiful church. But when I walked inside, I had this like like moment, and i I walked in the doors, and I, it took my breath away. The energy in the space, and i I remember saying, "Holy fucking shit!" And then, <laughs> and then it echoed through the whole. Oh, like, no. <laughs> through the whole church. Uh, luckily there weren't many people in there. But it was really that kind of moment and then kind of researching the, the church a bit, knowing that it had been like built on this sacred like a like couple of thousand years ago, built on a sacred pagan site and then many many evolutions of a church had been built on top of that and finally it's become Notre Dame. So um, that was really special. And then going from this sort of really – um spiritual experience to stepping out s- back outside of Notre Dame and watching like people break dance you know this sort of real um amazing um what is it juxtaposition mm. of this ancient beautiful spiritual place and then there's awesome break like doing flips and going for it and, yeah, incredible yeah so yeah it it's definitely an amazing place
2: we chatted with Anne Verhoeven last week about what she loves when it comes to France. But one experience that
1: wasn't so great was the first time she tried to get a job. I'd moved into this little flat. I wasn't even going to mention this, but this is a horror story in itself. <laughs> the flat where I was lived for my first six weeks in Lyon. It actually, um, I was in a bunk bed in a hallway uh, of a one bedroom apartment and I, at the bottom bunk, was a Polish girl called Anna, and I was on the top bunk, and in the living room was a fold-out sofa where two Italians were sleeping, and in the bedroom was a Swiss girl and a German girl. So there were six of us, six of us struggling students in a one-bedroom shoebox. That was quite funny. Anyway, so my Polish bunk mate um, Anna, who slept below me, she was really lovely, and she actually spoke French really well. She'd been living there for a year already, And she took a liking to me. She was a bit older than me and she took me under her wing. And I said, you know, I I need, like, I'm looking for cash work. And she said, oh, I've got plenty of contacts. Let me find something for you. I'll rustle something up. And um, she actually found me a job at a market, at, like, a um, farmer's market, a weekend market that sells, like, fruit and vegetables and cheese and all that jazz, like those beautiful French markets and it was at the rotisserie chicken stall, or as they say in France, uh, poulet roti. You know, when I, when I got this job, it only lasted one day, and this is why. Basically, I got there and, you know, I'd only been in France for a week, and my French was really bad. Not really good enough to sell anything to anyone, but I really tried my best. <laughs> the problem was that these rotisserie chickens were on this you know spinning around on this you know rotisserie and it was so hot it was like flaming hot in my eyes that every time I go to pull a chicken off and pop it in the bag it would like burn my face it was like staring into the sun or being at Mar- on Mars or something and I'd turn back around to the customers and I'd be like blinded and like covered in sweat from the heat I don't know how they did it so anyway, I was like the weird chicken girl who couldn't quite deal with the chicken rotisserie heat. And to top it off, that's not even the horror story, is that, you know, I was kind of calling out pull a roti to everyone that walked past and they'd kind of look at me weirdly. And then I got money stolen off me. Basically, these two older women approached, wanted to buy a chicken and then... They were holding a bag of, like, a box of pastries and they got chatting to me. One of them spoke English. Anyway, we got chatting and they gave me a pastry and, like, I think I had a biscuit as well. They had a whole bunch of sweets. And then because I was so distracted by the sweets and talking to them, they did this, like, trick of the hand, like, sleight of hand thing where they'd given me money but then I went to give them change but then actually I'd they'd held on to their money and put their money back in their pocket so I just given them all the change I'd given them I just given them free money I think I gave them about 40 euros or 45 euros because that I never actually took the note off them they were so clever and so uh, at the end of the day this boss guy came back and was like what the fuck? your till is short or whatever it really it looked like i'd swiped that money when actually i didn't know what was going on i hadn't clocked it and i couldn't defend myself to this owner of the chicken stand because i my french wasn't good enough i didn't know how to argue yet you know that that kind of comes later down the track <laughs> probably after you know maybe in month 3 of french french school um so yeah that was really sad so then i walked home like crying and the Anna, the girl that had gotten me the job, like, you know, she really felt for me and she took me out for dinner that night and that was nice. But you know, it was a fail, it was an epic fail. That was definitely a horror story for me. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you
2: didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't
6: actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: Comedian and presenter Jackie Mifsford didn't have a tricky first time in Paris per se. In fact, she fell in love with the place almost instantly. For her, it was trying to live in Paris that seemed nigh impossible.
5: Yeah, when I first was in Paris, I, um, yeah, I loved it. I have that thing where I always try and be present and I'm just looking at the building going, you're a building and you're in Paris, that means I'm in Paris, it's amazing. And I'm so easily impressed because you you really appreciate what you you don't have. So, like, looking at the building, look at this building, look, this was made before our country was even founded. This is just incredible, absolutely amazing. I went to some... um, little bunker they had that monks stored their food it was like from the third century like it was just it made no sense it was amazing Um, yeah and just having wine and cheese going to the supermarket and you just look on the three euro shelf of wine and that's good wine four euros pretty good six euro wine amazing for the bottle and here (laughs) it's so expensive Um, but yeah it is beautiful there are so many amazing streets the views yeah, the, the beautiful like, little treats, like all the boulangeries and all that sort of stuff. Like it, it is a very magical little place. The main reason why I left is because I had awful, awful um, luck with apartments. So I was there for about four years, and I, look, it was about three and a half. It doesn't matter. We'll round up. I moved fourteen times. I moved fourteen times because it's all housing is is so hard to find. It's so expensive. I had. Um, all these illegal sublets and it's like yeah it's cool if you move in oh actually no it's not or I moved in a house share they were assholes to me or then I um, I moved above a pub because a friend of a friend's guy lived there but then he would come home sometimes too it. it was just so strange like and after that four years um, the, the city people said before I, I when I my first year they're like the fourth year is your hardest because it's like any major city like New York or London or whatever it it can be an asshole. Like the whole city has a vibe and it can be quite harsh to you. And that was my main thing. I couldn't live anywhere. I was living on my friend's floors for months on end. I literally had a little mattress she'd pull out on her tiny 12 square meter yeah, um, apartment, like this tiny cupboard. And I just couldn't make that work. So it pushed me away after a while.
2: One of the really interesting things about Jackie is that while living in Paris, she actually worked as a tour guide operator taking people around Paris. So her take on tourism is quite unique.
5: Wait, when you go overseas, you are an ambassador for your country. Try and be good. <laughs> don't get people to drink alcohol or any substance out of a shoe. Just don't do it. Um, so yeah, there's always bad, bad eggs from every country but also they're younger, so there's like the, the Americans, like the really annoying Americans, that the stereotypes, you see them. You see the tele- terrible Australians that was like minus 10 once and snowing and this guy's wearing his thongs. And I'm like, mate, what are you doing? He's like, nah, that's fine, it's fine. I'm like, it's not fine, your feet are blue. He's like, nah, nah, that's all right. And I'm like, what is wrong with you?
2: Paris Syndrome, first diagnosed in 1986, is the result of extreme shock derived from the discovery that Paris is not what the sufferer had expected it to be. I've done a fair bit of research on this strange phenomenon, and I'll be honest, the information is sparse. But what you will discover is that this condition seems to affect Japanese tourists above all others, and is similar to Stendhal Syndrome, which is a psychosomatic disorder that causes rapid heartbeat, dizziness, fainting, confusion and hallucinations when an individual is exposed to an experience of great personal significance, particularly viewing art. Someone who knows a fair bit about Paris Syndrome is Lisa Walker, who recently published a book for young adults titled, you guessed it, Paris Syndrome. In this sweet and often surprising coming-of-age story, the lead character, Happy, struggles to come to grips with some of the realities of French culture, especially when they challenge the ideas she's been cultivating herself. Upon reading the book, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe Lisa had a tricky first time in Paris
1: too.
6: I actually had a really amazing time in Paris, but that idea does come from me always being a restless sort of person yeah. and thinking that you know, life was going to be more fabulous elsewhere. But actually, when I went to Paris, I just thought it was amazing, you know. I took my family on a kind of a literary pilgrimage around the city and we went to all the, the famous places where Jean-Paul Sartre used to hang out and dig to Hugo's house, and I just thought it was a dream. And I was very tempted to write my novel set there, but then I thought, well, that, that was just seemed a little bit too obvious to set it in Paris, so I thought I'd set it in, in Brisbane with someone who's yearning for Paris instead.
2: So, Lisa, why Paris Syndrome?
6: I just thought it was such a strange idea that people would fixate on Paris to such an extent that when they got there and it wasn't quite all poodles and so on that they would be so disappointed that they would actually go into a form of culture shock. And then I thought, you know, it was a metaphor for a lot of the way we think about travel in that we, you know, we do fixate on the idea that something somewhere else is going to be so amazing and i just yeah i thought it was such a strange idea that that particularly japanese people would have that kind of reaction to paris and then i realized that contrast between Japanese culture and French culture is one of the the primary factors in that but I think for anyone who watches too many French movies and looks at too much French fashion you do go there with this kind of idea the whole city's going to be swathed in a golden glow and and it's really not quite like that the Japanese have such a a polite and ordered way of doing things and the, the French way is just totally opposite to that and There's something about France, of course, that obviously appeals to the romantic in all of us, the the way the the movies portray it as being so incredible and just that whole historical thing. It, it, it It does create that sense of high expectation that something amazing is going to happen there.
2: So Paris Syndrome is largely our own fault, and I get it. When we think of Paris, we imagine long walks along the Seine, a baguette in hand. Flowers blooming in an immaculate park, while nearby women in striped shirts ride their bicycles to a café where they smoke cigarettes and eat croissant with a baguette in hand. And no matter where you are in Paris or which way you're facing, the Eiffel Tower will always be framed perfectly in the background. And in case you're wondering, yes, the tower has a baguette in hand. Now I'm not saying that some of this isn't true, especially the bit about the Eiffel Tower, but we need to see Paris as more than a postcard city – or at least, that's the advice of Le Monde's Pierre Trouvet. I spoke with him recently about tourism from a local's perspective. Hello, Pierre.
4: Hello, this is Pierre from Paris.
2: Pierre, why are people so obsessed with Paris and, to a wider extent, French culture?
4: I think it's because there are a lot of very symbolic places and monuments uh, in the city. Notre Dame is a symbol of France. Le Louvre is a symbol. Mona Lisa is a symbol. The Eiffel Tower is a symbol, etc., these symbols are very powerful and become attractive to strangers. And people want to see it in real, to take pictures of it, to get a part of the symbol for themselves. It's, it's really great. It's a pride, I think, for us because they became symbols, I think, because they are a perfect mix of beauty, which is very important for us. And they also have a fascinating historical background. There are, I think, two types of uh, tourists, the ones that understand that France and Paris are a living country, a living city, and uh, with all the problem in it, you know, in Paris, sometimes uh, people are disappointed because it's quite dirty. Some places uh, have been rotten by excess of mass tourism. Uh, there is also big wealth gap between people that you can see, and uh, there are a lot of... Uh, crazy people in the street Uh, it's a problem you know shared in a lot of big cities capital cities in Europe and in the world and once you admit that Paris is not a postcard city it's just a living city I think you can enjoy the mix of really beautiful places and some other living places or some ugly places. This mix is quite interesting and makes the beauty of cities, I think, you know, mixing uh, something eternal, like a postcard, and mixing something of the present with, even if it's uh, vulgar or mediocre, it's uh, for the poet, French poet Charles Baudelaire, It's you know, what is beautiful is a mix of uh, some, something with eternal beauty and some something that don't last.
2: Pierre, do you get frustrated when tourists visit Paris and they they either don't attempt to speak the language or, like me back in 2010, are too scared to?
4: No, 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 not at all, because it's great that there are so many nationalities coming to Paris. I can't ask everybody to speak in French, you know, it can be hard and I like uh, when people are asking their way or... You know, just talking in the streets when there are tourists. Uh, So, uh, as I live in Montmartre, which I think is the best place in Paris, I recommend it to you. (laughs) It happens a lot because uh, there are a lot of tourists every day. I see them in my streets. It's great because when people are nice and uh, asking the way, I show them some places and give them advice. But sometimes what I... really not like it's when people do not even say hello to me when they come to see me they just show me this map i want to go there always never um, say uh, you know do you speak english they directly speak really fast in english for the way Uh, in this case only in this case i think it's funny to take my really french accent and to uh, use a lot of uh, french word tu vois and uh, i love to see the react their reaction.
2: Pierre, finally, um, I had a tricky time with men in Paris. I think I may have gone in with all the wrong ideas, to be honest, so I have to ask, are French men excellent when it comes to romance?
4: Oh, this is just another unfair uh, generalisation. (laughs) Hmm. Yes, it's an unfair stereotype. There is no typically way to be romantic in French. We don't have uh, all uh, the same book you know and uh, there are no rules to seduce like a French uh, I think there are um, as many terrible lovers in Paris and everywhere else I'm sorry but uh, if one day you travel in France you can see that we have uh, something specific that we are very um, I don't know how to say but we are very demonstrative in the streets you know you can see French couple Kissing in the streets, you know, very very uh, tender gesture. Uh, it's quite specific. Uh, I think if I wanted to take a picture of a couple kissing in Paris every day, I could. You know, I just stop doing it because there are too much of it. I think it's related to um, you know what I, as I say for food, we like to enjoy the moment to stimulate our senses and our feelings. To be here and to feel great, it might have something to be with our romantic reputation.
2: Well, there you have it, folks. If you are thinking of heading over to Paris, a few things to keep in mind. There is an abundance of beauty in the city of love. However, there is a complicated side to Paris as well. As Pierre put it so brilliantly, it isn't Disneyland. Although if you are heading over there, visiting Disney would have to be in my top three tips. And speaking of tips... We'll finish up the show with some suggestions from our wonderful guests. Before we do, though, I'd like to thank Pierre Trouvet, journalist at Le Monde. You can find him on Twitter at Pierre3D. Rama Nicholas, filmmaker and improviser. Make sure you keep an eye out for her work soon. Lisa Walker, author of Paris Syndrome. This book is wonderful for Paris lovers and Francophiles, and I think it's just a really great read in general for young men and women. Head to lisawalker.com.au to see more of Lisa's work. Katrina Lawrence. You can grab Paris Dreaming at bookstores or visit her at theparisdreamer.com. Jacqueline Mifsud. You can see her show perfect from the 26th of March to the 7th of April at the Comedy Festival. Tickets are on sale now. Anne Verhoeven. She is a escape artist on Instagram. Make sure you follow her there. And Paul Verhoeven my sound technician, and my support team through every episode. Thank you very much. And a big thanks to Laure Briere for our opening song, Je Vole," available on iTunes. I'm Tegan Higginbotham, and you've been listening to Rue Lamarck. Please share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show and, and really feel free to get in touch. Next week, I'll be chatting about French women with a particular look at the French diet and French style. I'm going to be honest, I think it's a pretty good episode, so you should definitely listen in. But before you go, here are just a few tips for first-time travellers to Paris.
3: What I think is really important in Paris, even if it's your first time, is to have a day where there's absolutely nothing on your itinerary mm-hmm. and you just walk and you just be led by your kind of intuition or, you know, if you look down like around a corner and you see a particularly nice building at the end, just walk down there. And that's what Paris is all about. It's kind of about... Finding your own perfect Paris, and it's when you go off the beaten track like that um, that you find real treasures. Like sometimes an old carriage drop door might be left just ajar, and you can snoop in. You might get chased out by a cranky concierge, <laughs> <laughs> which has happened to me quite a few times. But that's when you see these little parts of Paris history that you wouldn't otherwise, because you could be so stuck on following the guides. So I think that is really important to just have this day of nothing, which will probably end up being like the highlight.
4: Uh spend time in museum. I recommend Musée d'Orsay with uh, with all the Gauguin, Van Gogh, Monet. Uh I got there a lot. Lot and uh Orsay, Le Louvre, Centre Pompidou are very big, so take the time to walk to, to 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 have a good you know moment in there and do not rush in every room, you know, like a lot of tourists do.
2: One other quick thing about the museums if you stand in front of the artwork with an iPad taking photos, you are a bad person. If you're disrespectful in places like the catacombs, you are a bad person. And finally, just one more time from Jackie because it's an excellent piece of advice.
5: Don't go into a museum if you don't like museums. You are annoying for people that like museums.
1: <laughs> it is honestly one of my favourite sound bites. Next tip always just uh get their house wine and it's going to be served in a um, carafe which is like well you know like a big jug or a pichet. that's like a smaller carafe you can also get a demi pichet, which is like a very very small one which would probably be the equivalent to like a glass and a half so if you're by yourself and you don't want to be an alcoholic um, a demi-pichet is always nice just to have like a glass and a half for yourself but the reason why I say don't buy the bottled wine is that that's going to be super like expensive comparatively this one is always the cheapest it's the house wine you don't get to pick what it is it'll just say house white or red so I always recommend that um, and there's just nothing quite like ordering a carafe of house white or rosé on a warm day with a cheese plate or if it's winter go for red just delightful
4: (laughs) you don't have to take the metro for small distances one or two stations if you walk you will see wonderful things especially if you look up and uh but i recommend to have a map because you can get lost a lot i live in montmartre and uh you know everybody is in uh Three streets, you know, they go in three places. They take picture, they go back. If you blend in, if you are walking across little streets or going to little cafe, you really, really, you can have a better view of French life.
2: Pierre is not exaggerating with that little bit of information at all. I have to say, Montmartre is incredible. It's where you'll find the street ruler mark, actually. But the first time I visited Paris, I stuck to the tourist route through Montmartre, and it is, it's its is—it's—it's not terrible, but it's not great. However, if you wander even one or two streets from this well-worn track, you see this completely different side of Montmartre. In particular, when you go visit the Sacre cœur this is one of my tips, at the very top of the hill, make sure you actually walk behind the building. There you'll find an adorable garden. It's one of my favourite places in Paris. And there's hardly ever
1: anyone there. Um, I don't think you need to know French to survive in Paris, especially if you're just going for a short time or if you're just visiting on a holiday. I think you can get by with English. These days, most people speak English, let's face it, all around the world. Um, And as a tourist, like, we're really lucky as native English speakers to just be able to just pretty much go anywhere and someone will understand at least a little bit. No, I don't think you need it to survive a trip to Paris, but I think if you intend to live there or to spend a a prolonged period there, I think it would be really good if you did learn it. I think in order to really thrive in France and to really get the most out of your stay and to kind of get under the skin of the city and go beyond these cliches that we all think About Paris or French people, I think it really helps to learn the language a bit. We'll be chatting about
2: language heaps more in episode four, but Anne is right. You can survive without knowing how to speak French. But I would just say, at a bare minimum, learn uh, bonjour, au revoir, oui, non, s'il vous plaît, merci, and je voudrais une baguette, s'il vous plaît, because trust me, you're going to need that one an awful lot. It'll take you no time at all, and it will make your life so much easier. I'm Tegan Higginbotham. Thank you once again for listening to Ruler Mark. See you next week. Abiento.
4: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.